Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. We are going to jump right into part two of our coverage of Jackie Kennedy. But first, a very quick recap of part one. Jackie was born in Southampton, New York in 1929 to parents who divorced when she was about 10 years old. Her mother's second husband's money and connections ensured that Jacqueline Bouvier grew up with a life of material wealth. She graduated college and was working as a journalist when she met Senator John F. Kennedy. They married and had children, and eventually Mr. Kennedy was elected the 35th President of the United States. As First Lady, Jackie charmed the world and her own country. She restored the White House and made it into a museum of American history. She became a patron of the arts and a leader of fashion. The Kennedys' marriage was not smooth, due largely to the president's relentless infidelity. But after the death of their fourth child, Patrick, in 1963, the couple were beginning to rely upon each other, even to genuinely love each other at last. The president asked for Jackie's help during some tough campaigning in Texas, and Mrs. Kennedy, as we left part one, had just written the word Dallas over three pages of her planner for November 1963. Which brings us up to speed. And so we continue. Okay, so Texas was going to be tough. (laughs) Then you were looking at a Democratic legislature, Democratic governor, you'd think it would be a slam dunk. Everyone's like, what? A Democratic majority in Texas? Oh, yes, friends. Oh, yes. Texas used to be a solidly Democratic state. But that was the whole problem, you see. The Democratic Party was splintering all over the South due to civil rights issues. There was a conservative side to the party that was not so keen on this racial equality, including Texas Governor Connolly, who was going to meet them there, and a progressive wing of the party that was pulling for change. And if the Democrats could not put themselves back together, there was a real chance that Texas might just turn Republican for good. But as we join the Kennedys on the plane, there's still some hope that some hard campaigning and I guess PR, because you know, the Kennedys are magic, especially Mrs., can keep the party together. And since Jackie had worked her magic in Europe, you know we're going to deploy her here too. Republicans in Texas were all fired up. Someone had spit on the vice president's wife not too long ago. The papers in Dallas called Kennedy a namby-pamby, weak sister who just rode around the White House on his daughter's tricycle. Like mature stuff like that. (laughs) Nice. So they're not exactly headed into friendly territory um, from either side. The Republicans don't want him there, and the Democrats are in their own sort of pickle. The governor, in fact, wished the Kennedys hadn't come at all. He had advised them not to come, that it would just throw fat on the fire. And he just hated the thought of a motorcade, I guess. All that publicity. Can we not just spirit you from the airport to this luncheon in kind of secret and not bring all these people into the situation? But no, the motorcade route had already been published in the newspapers. Note that, by the way, the route of the motorcade had been published for two days in the newspapers. That is not very wise. (laughs) This was Jackie's first campaign appearance since 1960. She had been pregnant during that election and kind of sequestered herself in a Cape Cod house and worked from there. But she hadn't been in public and she hadn't been in public too much since Patrick's death. So this was kind of like a big coming out for her. 
But she had become so skilled at social diplomacy that she was going to be a huge asset. She had to go and she wanted to. So come to Texas, they did. There were a couple of events the first day over in Fort Worth. You know, that's Dallas's twin city. It's sister city where Jackie gave speeches in Spanish. Good for her. When she got off the plane, she had been given a bouquet of yellow roses. Now, the official state flower of Texas is the blue bonnet. But what's the deal with the yellow rose of Texas? It's actually a song in homage to a heroine of Texas lore. Emily Morgan was an African-American who kept Santa Ana, quote, entertained so Sam Houston and his troops could overthrow the Mexican army. Because a lot of people think yellow rose of Texas, that must be the official flower. It's not. (laughs) And you know what? All I can think of right now, very unworthily, is Pee Wee Herman. (laughs) Singing, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. And I know that's not the song, but for some reason that's sticking in my head. So JFK and Jackie had spent a lot of time thinking about her wardrobe choices for this entire trip. Unworthily, again, I think, JFK had the point that all of those rich Republican women are dripping with jewelry and no taste. (laughs) Sorry, Mm -hmm. Texas. And you are going to show them what a stylishly dressed woman is, what class is. So for the big motorcade and all of that publicity, they picked one of her favorite suits. Hot pink, we'd say now they called it watermelon. Boucle with this navy trim and navy blouse. And of course, the matching trademark pink pillbox hat. She'd worn it many times before. You know, don't get me wrong. This isn't a new purchase or anything. Um, It wasn't as apparent then that she's repeating as it might be now because most TVs were black and white. Exactly. Most of America didn't even know it was pink for almost a year. It was um, from 1961. It was Chanel's collection. Now, it wasn't Chanel. It was a line for line reproduction from a New York fashion house so that Jackie could have Parisian style, but made in America. So the label said Chez Nignon, New York, not Chanel, but everything, the fabric, the pattern, the trims, the buttons were all from Chanel. Winkity wink, made in America. So smart lady, Chanel, to do what you have to do to keep this kind of influencer as a client, because she Mm -hmm. won't be first lady forever. And then your French name can just go back on her back, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I always thought that was so funny. Chanel just sent all the pieces. Mm -hmm. And they just sewed it together. And even then, I always wonder, because we've covered Chanel before, I wonder if she would have looked at the suit and found things wrong with it. Oh, probably. I want to say, especially after somebody's worn it a few times, I always think about knitted suits. How do the seats of your skirts not get poofy where your butt is? Well, I'm sure it's been dry cleaned. Wouldn't that shrink it back? I don't know. I think so. She had worn it six times in public. It seems like something that wouldn't happen these days. So on November 22nd, 1963, at around 11.45 a.m., the Kennedys emerged from their airplane. Jackie was given a giant bouquet of red roses. Well, she is America's queen, and you gave her (laughs) yellow ones yesterday. The mayor's wife, who had given them to her, thought that the red would look nice against the pink. Oh, that's true, because yellow and pink are kind of eh. Right. So the Kennedys and the Connollys, remember that's the governor, of Texas and his wife set out in their convertible through downtown Dallas on their way to their luncheon. And people had camped 
out before dawn to get a sight of the president and, of course, the spectacular Jackie Kennedy. And happy the people on the left side of the car. Yay, I win. Jackie, Jackie. Everybody's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And it was a big, giant deal. It was. And that limousine that they were riding in, it was a Lincoln, and it had been flown down to Dallas, especially for this event, from Washington, D.C., and Jack had requested that the top be down so that he could show off his wife. Oh, I know. Service. <laughs> they even stopped twice on the route so that he could shake people's hands. I mean, things that would never be done today. But this might be the incident that caused all of the protectiveness. Do you know what I mean? Like things oh, yeah. are unheard of until they're not. Mm-hmm. Well... It was hot, very hot, too hot for her suit. <laughs> and so it was with great relief that she saw ahead of them kind of a tunnel. It was where the road went under an underpass right before they got to the place where they were going to have lunch, in fact. And Jack kept telling her to take her sunglasses off because she kept putting them on because she couldn't see. It was blink, blink, too sunny. And, and so she's like, oh, come on, shade. Let's go shade. And that's where her mind was when at 1230... Less than an hour after they'd gotten off the plane, they had just turned onto Elm Street when Jackie heard Governor Connolly screaming the word no, 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 no. And Jackie turned to see her husband with this confused look on his face. I really do not want oh, to okay. get into the lurid details of the aftermath of what ended up being two shots fired from the sixth floor of the book depository building. We can, I think we should link you to any number of detailed timelines to go deep on the medical details too, if you mm -hmm. want. But I just think maybe we'll content ourselves with saying that Jackie cradled her husband's head in her lap all the way to the hospital and the interior of the car was covered with blood. I, that image of those red roses mixed with the blood is just so striking in my head. That just keeps sitting there. Now, Governor Connolly had been hit as well, and his wife had grabbed him and shielded him with her body. So both of the wives were holding their husbands, who had both been shot. Connolly, of course, survived, but it wasn't just Kennedy's blood that was mixing on the floor with those petals. And I hadn't realized that somebody else got injured at that point. There was a man, a 27-year-old car salesman who had stopped to watch the motorcade and there was a shot that did not hit either of the gentlemen in the car. It hit a curb and a chunk of cement came off and hit this guy and he was injured as well. Well, I had never heard that before. James Tack, T-A-Q-U-E. At Parkland Hospital, she had to be persuaded to let the doctors take Jack away. They wrapped his head in a jacket. She said to the doctors, you know he's dead. But still they did take him. And Jackie sat in shock in the waiting room. The way they described the scene there at the hospital of just chaos and hysteria, it reminds me of one of those movies, and I can't bring one to mind right now to save my life, where like one character is sitting and then they have all their surroundings going in fast motion around them. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have that image. Yes. Well, President Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m., though, as far as the doctors were concerned, he had been lost since the moment the second bullet hit his head back there in the car. They wrapped his head so Jackie could say goodbye, and she put her wedding ring on his little finger and kissed him and then waited outside the room while a funeral home got him into a coffin for the trip back. 
This is two hours after they landed and she was given the red roses. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that long. And she actually had to convince them to let her see his body after he was pronounced dead. She's like, I've just had his brain in my lap. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Yeah. So this is not going to shock me. I need to see him. And she did. Uh, Well, no one knew who did it. Why? How many of them are there? Are they stationed in every window? Are they coming to the hospital? The vice president was hustled off by the Secret Service for that very reason, because no one knew what was happening. Um, And he obviously is going to need to take over the duties of the president. And Jackie waited for her husband's coffin. And after all of this, I have to tell you the thing that made me sad, because this is all sad. And, you know, sorry, dear listeners, this is not one of those episodes where we banter a lot, because there's just no, well, maybe until section three. Yeah. Because the first two sections of this are just like, what, 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 Mm -hmm. over and over. Well, the thing that made me the saddest was, weirdly, as she left the hospital, one of the doctors had taken a couple of red roses for her out of the trash that had his blood on them that she had abandoned in the emergency room, he came out and he gave her a couple of those roses. And that, wow, I don't know. That made me feel upset. Yeah. I mean, he did it for the best reasons. And I think I would. Oh, yeah. I think of all the things, that would be the most poignant thing to have. Mm-hmm. But still, oh. Well, on Air Force One, Jackie, and this picture you have seen in this famous picture, stood beside Lyndon Baines Johnson as he was sworn in on an emergency basis, as the 36th president of the United States. I do not know if it was Jackie or if it was a more astute political mind prevailing, but her presence was somehow necessary. It made it better. Um, The transfer of power was more palatable with a Kennedy in the photo. Right. But even then, I mean, the judge, her name was Sarah Hughes, and she wept through the whole ceremony. Because she had to do it. I mean, yeah. she had this honor, but the reason she had it was horrible. And he was sworn in on a Bible that JFK used to keep on his nightstand. No one could convince her to change her clothes. Her suit was covered in blood, covered in her husband's blood. No, she said, I want them to see what they've done. And by they, she meant, and she fervently believed it was Republicans who had done it. Or had paid to have it done. Really, she mm-hmm. really did. She thought that it was to do with her husband's position on civil rights. And the fact that some very right-wing people had paid for a full-page ad with a black rim around it, um, kind of sarcastically welcoming him to the city, kind of added fuel to that belief of hers, that the hostile environment was what caused her husband to die. So I do believe she was blaming the Republican Party for killing her husband at this point. Mm-hmm. She regretted, frankly, that she had even washed her face before the swearing-in ceremony. There is another famous photo of her exiting the plane with Bobby Kennedy and the sight of her, her freaking skirt. That shut a crowd of thousands of people right down. It was a moment of silence caused by her appearance, and it was a powerful message. Because it did show the reality of what happened. Well, that suit, which she didn't take off until the next morning... Her mother packed it up in a box and put it in her attic for a while. Um, She did not want Jackie to destroy it. She thought that it would be important for history. And so we 
well, not we, because I won't be alive. Maybe some of you youngins can <laughs> see it. That suit uh, has been donated to the National Archives with the proviso that it not be publicly exhibited until 100 years after. That's 100 years after it was donated in the first place in 2003. So not until 2103. Therefore, I'm out. And even then, the Kennedy estate can renegotiate you know, if it is displayed or not. But right now it's kept in its original condition, uncleaned in a secret location in the National Archives. So nobody can see it. And also no one knows what happened to her hat. No, there's different theories that it flew off when the limo was racing to the hospital. And then I read a couple that she had it still at the hospital and it was gone after that. So it could be anywhere. It's probably in somebody's grandmother's trunk somewhere. Yeah. So estate sales are where you're looking. So there's two missing things we have charged you to try to find. I know, that painting that Carrie Nation put her axe through, and um, which is missing, and is probably in a frat house in Delaware. So right. look there. And then this hat. Like artifacts of history that are literally someplace. But where? We don't know. It seems like something you'd see on the Antiques Roadshow, you know. This was my grandmother's hat, and I noticed that she was in Dallas, and it doesn't have any value. If it's that hat, it would have absolutely no monetary value to you because you'd be expected to donate it to the Smithsonian for the greater good. Yes. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The funeral planning went ahead, and um, Jackie wanted it based on Abraham Lincoln's own arrangements after his assassination. Jackie had actually started the funeral arrangements on the plane. She had called ahead to the staff to get things going. She remembered those wood carvings during the restoration of the White House. And so she had seen how Lincoln's funeral happened and how the White House looked. And she wanted to emulate that as closely as possible. So that was one of her first thoughts is let's get going on making sure that we say goodbye to him properly. Um, Bobby took charge of a lot of those details because personally, things were going on just about how you'd think. Anyone would be grieving, making sure the children are all right. Grandma had stepped in. Um, their nanny had stepped in. There's a lot of crying, significant amounts of both praying and tranquilizers. Just human grief. Yeah. Now, Jackie had been further devastated, if that's even possible, by being told upon his capture that her husband's murderer was, quote, only a communist. And it's hard to explain this, but it broke her heart even further that his death was not due to something important like civil rights. She felt that at least then he might not have died in vain, but just to have it be a random cockamamie shooter was just meaningless. Mm -hmm. Of course, as time went on, the conspiracy theories abounded about what actually happened. People had a hard time believing that he acted alone. When the Warren Commission gave the report in 1964, 90% of the population thought that he had acted alone. In 2013, only 24% of Americans thought that he had acted alone. That's how many conspiracy theories are out there that are just diluting the story. Hmm. When they were looking for Oswald, there was a police officer, J.D. Tippett, who confronted him. He found him and Oswald shot him as well. And he died as a result of this assassination. So that's a second person who lost their life because of Oswald that day. Well, two days after his death, 
Jackie walked behind her husband's coffin, despite warnings and, frankly, pleading from the Secret Service, Lyndon Baines Johnson followed her. So did Britain's Prince Philip and a whole list of dignitaries. It was worldwide mourning and worldwide bravery, honestly, because at this time, two days afterward, they didn't know if he'd been working alone. They didn't know if there was a whole bunch of people just stationed around ready to pick people off. Mm -hmm. But nobody was going to be seen to not be as brave as Jacqueline Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So that walk, you see that a lot of pictures of her with that dark veil on. That was an eight block walk from the White House to the church. She walked behind the uh, horse-drawn caisson that was actually not only carrying JFK's casket, but it had carried FDR's as well. There was a riderless horse as well with boots facing backwards in the stirrups. What's the deal with that scenario, you ask? Well, it's an homage to a fallen leader. It's supposed to represent the departed man looking back at his men for the last time. Alexander Hamilton, you know, the son of squalor who grew up to be a hero and a scholar, that Alexander Hamilton was actually the very first American to be given this honor. And more history in this procession. Now what not even Jackie knew was that Black Horse's actual freaking name was Black Jack, the nickname her father had gone by for his whole life. So there's a little meta for you. Oh, yeah, no kidding. That one was weird. Well, little Caroline was so strong for her mother. Bless the children's hearts, I'm telling you. And we all know that famous picture of tiny little John. John, poor little guy on his third birthday. This is his third birthday, the funeral of his father, no less. And his little salute to his father. We've all seen that picture. Kennedy was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. There had been some talk of burying him in Boston, where the rest of his family lay. But Jackie said, no, he belongs to the American people. He should be buried in Arlington. It was also her idea to have the eternal flame at the grave. So these are the details. These are the kind of details that she's involved in, in this funeral, just days after her husband was murdered in her presence. Like, that's the part that blows my mind, that she would have the sense to make all these details. I don't know that I could. But then again, you keep busy after a death. It keeps you going, you know, having things to do. And she was a keep busy kind of woman. I do think she had a lot of help. I know it was kind of marketed that she did all this herself, but she did have a mm-hmm. whole staff. I mean, there was an element of delegation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's have an eternal flame. She doesn't have to go out and find out how that happened. Right. Right. She just has to say it. Yeah, exactly. But still important. So the Johnsons let her stay on with the children for a couple of weeks at the White House, because if you think about it, you are instantly removed from office. You're not the first lady anymore. Lady Bird Johnson is the first lady. And technically, that was her house. I wonder about the American sentiment that that was considered to be a very gracious thing to do to let her pack up her stuff for two weeks. But Lady Bird and Lyndon were very kind to her and to the children. And they stayed that way. Johnson made a lot of concessions for her that he probably wouldn't have done if she hadn't asked. So... Yeah. Well, like naming Cape Canaveral Cape Kennedy. Kennedy, exactly. Which she actually kind of regretted afterward. The Kennedys, of course, had sent her in, like, go talk to Johnson. He'll listen to you. And she later said, I didn't realize it had been its name since the 1500s. I wouldn't have had him change it for the world if I had known the history. Mm-hmm. History is very important to her. And so, of course, it's back to Cape Canaveral now. So 
it wasn't a permanent solution, but still, um, yes, he was very accommodating to anything she asked for. Mm -hmm. Definitely. In those two weeks, not only did she pack up her family and pack up her belongings, but she also had Patrick and Arabella's graves moved so that they could be buried next to their father in Arlington. That's another detail that she made sure what happened. Speaking of accommodating, some friends literally moved out of their own house so she and the kids would have a place to live. So she settled in the new establishment, the pressure's off from the funeral, from the publicity, from the trauma, and as nature does to you, when the immediate pressure is off, she sort of fell apart. Friends described the inside of that house as, and I quote, an abnormal atmosphere of suppressed hysteria, emotion, catatonic grief that marked Jackie for life. Even in her private life, she became someone extraordinary, touched by fate and celebrity. No one would ever be able to react normally to her again, nor would she ever However hard she tried, and she did try, be able to escape her golden cage. Wow. Well, I mean, she became community property, kind of. Mm -hmm. The second she became a widow, she was sort of owned by American history, I think. And that's mm -hmm. a hard burden to have for anybody. No, and she had already had that relationship with the American people while she was first lady. You know, she had developed it. So they grieved with her as a country, but personally. You know, they felt they had a connection with her. She was everywhere. Her picture was all over the place. There is a book that I'm going to recommend during the media section that is nothing more or less than a collection of letters to Mrs. Kennedy expressing average Americans sorrow on her behalf for the death of her husband. And it is quite touching. There's notes from little kids in there. They left all the misspellings from everyone, all the poor grammar, if it mm -hmm. existed, um, from all walks of life, from the shortest note to the longest note. This is a selection of the, I want to say, 35,000 letters came per day. One more major legacy that Jackie left behind in the public consciousness was the myth of the Kennedy White House as Camelot, this rarefied ideal of a place made famous by the Lerner and Lowe Broadway musical entitled, of course, Camelot. It was a place where it never rained until after sunset. It was a place where the winter left obligingly every year on March 2nd, which I'm hoping will occur this year because I am tired of ice. <laughs> after his death, Jackie sat down with a Pulitzer Prize winning author named Theodore White. He had written a book about JFK's 1960 campaign, and she felt that he was the guy to tell this story. And it ran in Life magazine and included this myth of Camelot. Uh, she said, I keep thinking of this line. It's become an obsession for me from a musical comedy. Jack liked to play some records, and the song he loved most came at the very end, The Last Side of Camelot. Don't let it be forgot that there was once a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And she said, there'll never be another Camelot. So we've all heard that. It happened after the funeral. And I should note that that writer knew full well that that was a heaping helping of steaming malarkey. <laughs> but yeah, he... being a writer, he thought also a really good hook. So, putting his principles aside, he decided to go forward with that innocent rewriting of history. That image, I swear we still have today. Thus, everyone's surprised when we kind of blow the lid off the infidelities in the Kennedy marriage. 
because in our minds, we have been conditioned that this was the ideal brief shining window into glory in the American White House before it snapped shut into war and the Russians and, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) She gave a series of interviews around this time that were so honest in contrast to the Camelot situation fueled by drink. I don't know what the story was. You could hear Ice Cube's a clicking that the tapes of this interview were to be sealed up at her request and not released until the 50 year anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. And they were. And ABC did this special that year, which sort of put her comments in context. We'll give you a link to, well, I mean, they don't have all the tape. They have edited them into a narrative, but she is tart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to say tart. It is not Princess Jackie. This lady on the tape is going to let you know what she thinks. This interview is more like that Dr. Feelgood fueled insult dinner that they showed Jackie reigning over in the crown. We talked about it over on the recapery. It's her at a table just letting go with her real thoughts. A lot of them were very controversial, especially about women's rights. We look at her now and think, oh, she was a feminist. But if you listen to these tapes, she's very much very old fashioned in these tapes about women's roles in society and in their families. It's yeah, it's shocking. I love that documentary. I thought it was so well done. I strongly recommend anybody watching it. It's a, Diane Sawyer, I think, hosted it. So bad publicity followed Jackie around about a book that was written using a lot of what Jackie had considered off the record, maybe even things from the tapes we just talked about, which were not supposed to be released to anybody. But this guy knew a lot of personal details. Where else could he have gotten them? The controversy over her and Bobby wanting to hold this book back to prevent it from being published, to edit it, to censor it, place the press and the public sort of in an adversarial relationship with her for the first time. They sort of turned on her. There's a weird period of time here when she could simultaneously do no wrong and was an arrogant waste of taxpayer money. I don't know. Like People still screamed when she came by and she and her children got death threats every week. So it's a very weird position to be in. So she is no longer a person. She is public property. We've said it before with others. That is a extremely hard, perhaps impossible, realm to inhabit. And so mm-hmm. she moved out of D.C. back to her old stomping grounds in New York. She bought a 15-room, five-bed and five-bath co-op on the corner of 5th Avenue and 85th Street. Most of its windows face Central Park. So this is a very nice address that she's moving into. At the time, it cost her $200,000, which is under $2 million in $2018. But even that is a steal for what this property would be worth. I believe the last time they sold it, it was like $30 million. You know, she was always nervous about money, which to you and me still seems like playing the small violin. She was getting from the Kennedy Trusts, um, and her children had trust too, so they're um, their income flow to her for their upkeep, but um, $200,000 a year in that money. So there's a couple million at least coming to her from Kennedy money, but she was nevertheless pinch penny and very stressed out about being poor. Yeah. Well, I, she was spending a lot of money on rehabbing her co-op. 
you know, she was spending money pretty fast. And maybe for the first time she was realizing that, you know, the buck stops here. She was the person that was in charge of the finances for them. Maybe she just had no realistic view of money, like how we view it, because she's always had so much at her disposal. Maybe it was a warped view. There is some kind of exercise that um, homeless shelters sometimes run or food pantries will sometimes run where they run a simulation where they give you a certain amount of money Mm -hmm. and a certain amount of, quote, time. It's not real time. It's like on a card, like a playing card. You know, you have to spend your playing cards as your time. Mm -hmm. And you have to basically live for a whole week on these criteria that they give you. And almost everyone gives it up. And I almost think every single person in Congress should be required to run that simulation. Maybe they should do it in the House building and see how far they get. I I think people like Jackie perhaps don't have any conception of what it is. Mm -hmm. I agree. So Mrs. Kennedy, over time, um, did have some relationships with men, largely kept out of the public eye at the request of the Kennedys, the Kennedy machine, I'm going to call them, whose point was that they need the widow figure, which is kind of cold hearted, you know. Mm -hmm. But then she was also, here's another one of these weird contrasts, was seen parading around, I think, innocently with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby actually lived in the neighborhood. There was a lot of her friends that lived nearby. Her stepbrother, who she was very close to, lived around the corner. Uh, Lee lived down the street. She had some very close friends that lived in her building. And she and Bobby had always got along. They'd hung out as a foursome, you know. Bobby and Ethel, Jack and Jackie. But yes, I can see why, you know, chattering public would go, oh, they're having an affair. Well, not to hearken back to a sad occasion necessarily, but he was the person that was there with her when um, Arabella died. Mm -hmm. Not her own husband. So just a little flashback. When Jack died, he was there for her. So they had a lot of common ground you know, live through this traumas together. I wouldn't think it peculiar. Although I'm afraid to say that Bobby Kennedy had the same uh, extracurricular hobby that his brother had, not in the extent that he did, but infidelity ran in the family, I guess is a good way to put it. Well, but get this though, with Jackie and Bobby, I'm assuming I'm correct on this, we're together every way but physically. And I'm wondering if that's almost worse for his wife than the other. More of a betrayal to be emotionally involved with someone Mm -hmm. to the exclusion of your own wife. So Jackie was excited when Bobby decided he was going to make a run for it for the presidency. I mean, not just, you know, running away and kind of was clapping her hands like, we're going to go back to the White House, meaning the Kennedy machine is going back to the White House. And Ethel looked and said, who's this we? Yeah. Well, Jackie was looking for projects. Shortly after his death, after she moved to New York, she began fundraising efforts for the JFK Library. She was involved in the early planning of it, um, the collecting of the memorabilia. She used the skill that she had gained when she was restoring the White House to get money coming in for this project. Unfortunately, it would take quite a while before the actual library opened like a decade. There was also a comedic brouhaha over the Resolute desk. (laughs) She wanted the Resolute desk to um, travel with a Kennedy exhibition and the curator at the White House didn't want to let it out of the White House and there was a big battle and it did travel for a little while and it came back so wrecked up and battered that she was not allowed to borrow it again and they had to basically make a replica (laughs) for the Kennedy library. (laughs) 
Oops. Well, you know, she's the one that left a mean note for the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art after she stole his set of silver. So. <laughs> So life in America was sort of getting intolerable for Jackie. Um, she's the most recognized woman in the world. You can never do anything anywhere without being mobbed. And then the murder of Martin Luther King hit her again in the same shocking way her husband's had. Again, the country was in shock. Again, the country was in mourning. Again, a man full of promise and hope and youth was cut down. Uh, she did go to his funeral. Well, she had adopted her old pre-Jack habits after his death of maintaining some relationships with high society on several continents. Now, you remember from part one, she knew some people, didn't she? Well, for example, she was pen pals to a personal extent with our old friend Harold Macmillan, who's the prime minister of England. <laughs> I, they had this really uh, adorable relationship in these letters. I that that was another thing. I got my mind blown a lot during research on this one. But yeah, Harold Macmillan. I mean, you think about how he is on the Crown. We talk about him all the time over on the Recapery in that context. But to imagine him as the pen pal of Jackie, weird. You never know how people are going to mix, do you? Mm -mm. Well, one old friend, one of her sister Lee's former liaisons, actually was slowly rising to the top as serious husband material, which the Kennedys, who still felt like they owned her, her image, her popularity, the mythology of Camelot, were very unhappy about. And they would have been unhappy no matter who it was, I think. But the fact that she chose this guy, Aristotle <laughs> Onassis, you cannot be serious. He was a self-made man, sure. He owned an airline and jillions of dollars, <laughs> but he wasn't the most couth of men. He was a lot older than Jackie. He was a vulgar man. He was not our kind dear in every way, but monetarily. Mm -hmm. People will hate this. Bobby is trying for the Democratic presidential primary right now. Can you just not right now to her, mm, I guess, credit? I don't know. She stayed outwardly a good pawn in their game, which I she didn't have to do. No, she didn't. She didn't. But she did. <laughs> well, she got on board with the Kennedy agenda again. And in fact, when she was woken up on June 5th, 1968, she had just been the night before to a Bobby Kennedy rally slash fundraising event the night before where she was the star attraction that raised all the funds. So a caller, she answers the phone. How's Bobby? Said the caller. He's great. Thanks. I know he just won California, said Jackie. No, Jackie, Bobby's been shot, says the caller from England. She didn't know. Bobby Kennedy had been making a speech in Los Angeles. He was exiting the hotel through the kitchen when he was shot three times by Sirhan Sirhan. When Jackie got that call at 4 a.m., she was of course devastated, but it was such a, oh my gosh, this is happening again. But she got on a plane and immediately flew to California where Ethel already was, where Teddy was in the hospital room. They were both, she, you couldn't talk to them. Jackie was actually the person who told the doctors that he was on life support. He's never going to come back. You need to take him off life support. So Jackie made that call. And after Bobby's death, Jackie was alarmingly not herself, distraught even. 
Um, people called her unbalanced. One of her friends said that she kept referring to Bobby as her husband. Yes, it's as if something came a little bit flapping loose. It's as if she could take the one major tragedy and then the Martin Luther King thing, but like she could not handle these two personal tragedies. After the necessities had been taken care of, she spiraled out of control. And I think this was the final straw for Jackie. And she took what I consider to be the extraordinarily bizarre step of introducing Aristotle Onassis to Rose Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's mother. Do you not find that like... (laughs) (laughs) Well, Aristotle had been part of her life for a long time, and he had been courting her for a while, you know, behind the scenes. So um, Jackie was really involved with the Kennedys. So I can see her doing that. That one wasn't really too much for me to grasp. Although Rose's reaction did surprise me. She she was like, okay, that's fine. Do what you must. Yeah, the rest of the family was very <laughs> anti, but Rose thought, you know, you deserve something after all this. I like, uh-huh. oh yeah, her own mother. It is a tragedy. It is a travesty. That ugly man, that rough, vulgar person just wants you as a trophy. He doesn't love you. He just wants to possess you. And you know what? Jackie was determined. She said, if they are killing Kennedys and my children are Kennedys, we have to get out of here right now. And among other things, Aristotle Onassis had at least $500 million and probably more and private islands. And he could provide her security and he could provide her privacy and a way out of her current situation, which was kind of in bed with the Kennedys at all times. So uh, the announcement went out. Mrs. John F. Kennedy is engaged to Greek shipping tycoon Aristotle Onassis. And the responses worldwide, let's just say, were not positive. So this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life with Onassis was really like. And we're back. Since Aristotle Onassis is a part of Jackie's life for sure, maybe we should take a little bit of a look at him. He was a 62-year-old shipping tycoon. He'd been born into wealth, but the family had lost everything during a Turkish occupation during World War I. He himself fled to Argentina with $63 in his pocket and worked his way up. He started as a dishwasher, then a construction worker, then a tobacco farmer. Then he took his money and moved to New York, where he was able to invest in shipping tankers and was a millionaire by the age of 25. That was quite a progression from dishwasher to millionaire. Um, He was married the first time for business to combine his company with his new in-laws to form the most 
powerful shipping company in the world. He had some shrewd investments, a little fraud charge with a $7 million fine. No big deal. Uh, he founded an airline. And in 1956, when the Suez Canal closed during a coup, his ships were the only ones that were available to take the long way round. And his fortunes hit the stratosphere. We talk a lot about that in, over at the Recapery in season two, episode one, Misadventure of the Crown. So here we are with plans to marry this guy. Uh, here is what I'm not comfortable with. He beat his wife, Tina, to a bloody pulp while she was pregnant in hopes she'd lose their second baby. Yes, he cheated on said wife with a famous opera singer and then cheated on her openly with all and sundry for the entire, what, eight or nine years of their relationship pre-Jackie including with Lee, Jackie's sister. He is reported to have boasted to all his friends that he'd won, not won like in love, but beat everyone out to the most famous woman in the world. Like I am now the most famous man in the world. I don't like that. Uh, there's nothing about this man that I like other than he could provide her some security that she didn't have before. I mean, physical security on his private Greek island. There is one more thing I like. I'm sorry. There is one more thing I like. He was oh. born in the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> that's kind of cool. You think that's a long ways in the distant past, but I guess not. Nope. Um, his relationship with Jackie actually went way back to when Jack was only a senator. And he invited Kennedy and Jackie aboard his mega yacht, the Christina, to hang out with Winston Churchill. And that's the first time he met her. This is, I mean, this is early in their marriage. So he's known her for a long time. He was there for her after Patrick's death. And um, he's just been a constant, but he's been a constant trying to get her, which I didn't like. <laughs> right. And evidently, people say there was some kind of powerful and mutual physical attraction. I don't see it. <laughs> Uh, okay, that's all I'm saying. I'm going to let that be. Well, 39-year-old Jackie married 62-year-old Ari, as she called him, in a small private ceremony. I guess they're sensitive to world feelings about this. I don't know. On his small private island of Scorpios, like you do on your I, island. That's right. Well, I thought it had to do with security. Because okay. at this time, you know, she wanted privacy. She really hadn't had it. Even, you know, when she was in the White House, she didn't have it. After they left, the crowd still hung out at her houses all that time. So in the wake of Martin Luther King and Bobby's assassinations, I can see why she would want privacy in a private ceremony. Also, <laughs> nobody else wanted them to get married. <laughs> Well, now her children were there and they participated in the ceremony. His children, grown up children, they were there and they radiated pure hate at her the whole time. So that was their participation in the wedding. <laughs> the wedding was Greek Orthodox. So even though Jackie's kids were there, they didn't understand a single word of it. And I don't know if John really remembered his father that well, but how weird would it be for Caroline to have gone from JFK to this guy? Who is this guy? I... <laughs> oh, yes. my goodness. Well, the world lost its collective shizzle, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, everyone had an opinion. Everyone. She'd betrayed the ideals of 
Camelot. I mean, I call BS on that part, by the way. Um, her husband died. It was not her responsibility to be Queen Victoria, you know, mm. alone forever. That's what people wanted. I don't think that was fair. I don't think she should have married this guy. Nonetheless, it was not her responsibility to keep everyone happy in that regard. Um, Ari was divorced. And so was the Catholic Church going to boot her. Was she crazy? Was she thinking straight? Was she on drugs? Um, I can say yes to one of those. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not saying that she was a drug addict, but she did rely on pharmaceuticals quite a bit to help stabilize herself. It seems like an early 60s scenario, though. Housewives were taking things like dexedrine to lose weight and to be peppy enough to iron. And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> even shameful, kind of. No. Well, I guess I'll join the chorus of disapproval. Not that I have a right to exactly any more than anyone else, but I do not understand this relationship at all. There is infinite money, but I just don't know what Jackie was thinking. I just yep. don't know. I don't either. Even before the when they had decided to get married, um, he gave her a 40 carat diamond ring that she only wore a few times before it went into a bank vault because it's huge. Um, it, her attorneys and his attorneys got kind of got together and worked out a financial deal, like almost a reverse dowry, where he had give her like a $3 million, I'm calling it a signing bonus, <laughs> and a trust for her kids had to be worked out before the wedding. Since she had lost the Kennedy trusts by marrying him, he agreed to cover a few years of those trusts as part of mm -hmm. the wedding agreement, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, she said, though, that she didn't want to sign any kind of prenup other than this because that would be bargaining with herself or whatever. So she didn't protect herself very well in um, financial ways. I don't know how I would say. <laughs> well, Ari went back to his mistress right after the honeymoon, though, to give him some points over JFK, at least Ari was sort of discreet about it. He didn't flaunt the affair in Jackie's face. He only made dates with his mistress through an intermediary and didn't call her directly. He had the lights turned off when he approached her door so no one would see him, theoretically. Um, at least there was an attempt to be discreet. But more heartbreaking, I think, was that Ari talked business with his mistress. She's the famous opera singer Maria Callas, the same woman that had broken up his first marriage, he was still dating now during his second marriage. And he talked business with his mistress, but his wife was not to worry her pretty head about it. Like, not your business. Don't mm -hmm. ask me about that. As shocking as that is, it's not shocking at all. I mean, it sounds like something, you know, maybe a king would do. I'm trying to think of someone that would have done that. Not the wife is just do your thing. And then the mistress is the one that gets all the, you know, intimate details of your life, including business. Hmm. Well, she was graciously allowed free reign to redo the main house on Scorpios called the Pink House, but Ari hardly even ever spent the night there because he preferred to live on his yacht, his tacky, <laughs> expensive <laughs> yacht that Jackie was not allowed to touch with her renovations and good taste. He had bar stools covered in whale scrotums. <laughs> You guys, that's <laughs> the level. There were many jokes about sitting on big balls. Do you see Jackie liking this at all? 
No, not at all. That that it's a 325 foot yacht. It had marble bathrooms and gold faucets, a playroom, a hospital, a movie theater. The pool had a floor that would raise up to form a dance floor. It was flashy. Jackie called that pool the bathtub. <laughs> Well, her friends that visited her said that during this time period, she seemed switched off, kind of. Like, her body was walking around without anything behind her eyes. She was in a giant fog. She was dripping with jewelry and wanted nothing, materially speaking. And Ari was kind to her children, though I will tell you, he bitterly resented her habit of putting them first over him, her lord and master. He was not very happy with the dynamics of this family. Although she didn't keep them with her the whole time. They continued to go to school in New York, then they came to Greece for the summer. That was their new summer home. So it wasn't like he had to deal with them all the time. They were only there a short period of time. And for as nasty as her new stepchildren, Alex and Christina, were to Jackie, they actually got along with Jackie's kids. And he didn't deny them anything material either. There was no mistreatment. He did not um, scare them or anything. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. nevertheless, he was always um, simmering on the back burner is that she should focus on her husband as a proper Greek wife would and wait on him hand and foot and do as he says. Mm-hmm. She did try to get um, Greekified. Um, she did like life in Greece. She learned how to cook Greek food. She studied Greek art and history. She had long talks with one of his friends about Greek literature. So she was kind of immersing herself into the Greek culture, but not enough for him and his King of the Hill ways. So the press gave Jackie a new nickname, one you all still know, Jackie O, they called her. Must have been very, very surreal to people who had known her as Mrs. Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) But she was almost like a different person than Mrs. Kennedy. Like If you listen to her voice at this time, she's losing that breathy princess voice that she used to have. I mean, it never goes away fully, but um, it's not as exaggerated as it was back then. Well, Ari was described as extraordinarily loud. Maybe he was rubbing off on her. (laughs) Maybe. Well, our Jackie had an able assist in tearing apart the Kennedy legacy. Not my opinion, by the way. Um, But the prevailing societal one. The incident on a bridge in Chappaquiddick that caused a woman's death. Ted Kennedy's shame and maybe just maybe accelerated King Joe Kennedy's death. Jackie Onassis slept in a chair in Joe Kennedy's bedroom as he lay dying. So she was honoring the paterfamilias of her, quote, real husband's family. And that's literally how she felt in her heart that the Kennedys were her real family. So what was this other thing? I'm sorry, I'm still hung up on the 10 points I'm giving you for using paterfamilias in a sentence. Oh. <laughs> Ten points to Ravenclaw. Was this all pretense? Was this all surface? I am having a hard time understanding the real Jackie during the Onassis years because it does seem like there might have been a real Jackie operating, but everything else was a front. She tried to please her husband. She tried not to rock the boat. She tried to act a certain way. She, as far as I know, didn't complain about his behavior, which was not 
necessarily very honorable toward her. Mm-mm. It just seems like um, a point in her life where she's trying to define herself. Her public persona is it, not working anymore. She's not that person. She can't keep up that that brand. So what is she? I think this whole time period, I think she's trying to figure it out on his private island. <laughs> Several people had described her face in a way that I thought was quite interesting and maybe full of hyperbole, but also an interesting picture. You know, once upon a time, Joe Kennedy had described Jackie Kennedy as a porcelain doll, and he was worried that she would be too fragile for the rough and tumble world of politics. Well, after Jack died and Bobby died and all the trauma of the previous hmm, 10 years, even several friends described her face as having cracked all over in little fine wrinkles. Like if you dropped a china cup and the glaze was the only thing that cracked. Hmm. Like she'd broken, kind of. And I think that seemed like a very on-the-nose way to describe her, but it came from several friends who remarked upon the change in her appearance. Yeah, it's very sad. I I do not have any happy feelings about this time in her life at all. I don't want to say it feels dirty to me, but it just feels embarrassing almost. Yeah, and I think her friends felt the same way, kind of embarrassed by having to include this relationship in their picture of their friend, Mm -hmm. I think. Well, her marriage was falling apart very quickly after it happened in the first place. I'd say within two years, you could categorically call it not good. Um, His businesses were in trouble. Not you and I level trouble, mind you. I think he still has hundreds of millions of dollars. (laughs) But the stress and also the fact that he and Jackie literally had nothing in common was getting to him. She'd try to change her ways, even change herself to please him here at the beginning. And he'd just blow up and just be contemptuous. His relationship with Maria Callis, he decided to go plain old public with it again. How about it? And she went along with it. You mean Maria Callis went along with it. I have to say, although (sighs) their relationship actually seems better like more solid because it's lasted longer and it's obviously based on some type of mutual attraction and it knows that relationship knows what it is. Whereas the relationship with Jackie, she doesn't know what she's supposed to be. And suddenly he's embarrassing her in public. He's yelling at her. I mean, he's telling her she's spending too much money. One time she was talking about Socrates with a friend of hers and he just started screaming, why do you have to talk about such stupid things? Do you stop to think before you open your mouth? I mean, that's the kind of verbal abuse that she's getting at this time. How mm-hmm. dare you talk to her that way? He um, he was so mad and it really got to him that the world thought she just married him for his money. And then anytime the bills came in, that reminded him that the world thought that. And he got madder and madder and it hurt his pride. And it got to the point where she would no longer obey him unquestioningly the way he seemed to want, the way he seemed to portray a Greek woman would obey. Now, we've all seen my big fat Greek wedding. that the women are the neck that can turn the head any way they want. So his rosy view of the obedient Greek wife may not have been what he thought it was, but nevertheless, it got to the point where he was demanding more and more unreasonable obedience from her in front of people to the point where at one time they pulled up to an island and 
he decided that no one was to get off to go shopping. No one was to get off for any reason. Everyone was to just stay on the boat and look at the village. And she said, you don't have to go. I'm just going to take our guests and we'll go over there. And he told her, no, splish, splash, off she is, off the boat, swimming to shore. And he was so horribly embarrassed that he didn't talk to her for a week. <laughs> but that was his fault. Yeah, it was totally his fault. And I love the image of Jackie diving off this huge yacht. I mean, we're not even talking like a kind of boat that you would see docked at a very nice yacht club. We are talking monster. It looks like a cruise ship. And she's diving off the side of it. He told all of his friends openly that he was going to divorce Jackie and keep her from getting hold of any of his money. He was kind of obsessed with this now, that he thought she was out for all his money, all his money, his money, his money, his money. This was not even four years into their marriage. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, not at all. And he was doing some pretty backhanded things to try and get her to not go after his money. You know, having her sign documents that she didn't really know what she was signing and they weren't really worded properly. It was dirty pool on his part. Well, evidently, he had had his lawyers write up different divorce agreements for years as sort of a torture for Jackie. She had forfeited that Kennedy money on marrying him and was more dependent than was really comfortable for her. Mm -hmm. He actually had some government friends pass a law that would allow him to cheat her out of anything required of him to give her under Greek law. Yes. Mm -hmm. He knew the guys that just changed the law. That's yeah. something else. He wanted to bug her New York apartment, although she was not the one cheating. This is the projection that I don't get. He was all obsessed with the fact that she was, quote, cheating on him. And I don't think during the Onassis years, she ever stepped out on him. No, I don't think so either. So the fact that he wanted to bug her apartment to catch her doing something so he could get out of paying some money was hilariously thwarted by the fact that Jack and Caroline still had Secret Service protection and uh -huh. let his people in the apartment. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jackie had lost hers, her Secret Service protection when she married him. That was one of the things she gave up. The kids saved the day. Sounds like a Disney movie. Well, Ari's only son, Alexander, died in a plane crash. And there had been a series of disasters for the family, but this was the ultimate, ultimate setback. And Ari's whole Greek family began to accuse Jackie of bringing, quote, the Kennedy curse into their family. It's not just him that wants to divorce her now. His whole family does. Well, evidently, he suffered a giant business loss, actually sort of devastating this time, and was diagnosed with an incurable disease. So maybe <laughs> there is something to this curse thing. <laughs> Jackie was at his side most of the time he was dying. This wasn't an acute disease. It was a um, kind of a long-term decline. Um, but her daughter Caroline had worked on a TV show. There was a documentary and it was about to air over in the United States. And Jackie, the proud mama, wanted to have the crew and some friends for a little celebration in New York. And the doctors assured her that Ari was stable enough for her to go. You know, you're fine. Go ahead. There's plenty of time. So she did. She went. But he died before she could get back to him because the news didn't get back to her that his condition had worsened. His daughter, Christina, was with him and uh, she did her best to make sure that nobody else would come into the room. You know, don't tell anybody else yet. 
kind of situation. So even if Jackie, you know, had been told, she couldn't have made it. So Jackie's non-presence at his bedside as he died did absolutely nothing to improve her reputation in Greek circles. I will tell you that. (laughs) Her reputation in Greece reached absolute rock bottom. There was a years-long battle over money. Was there a will? Wasn't there? Was there intent to divorce or wasn't there? Had she signed legal paperwork waiving any right to her husband's fortune? Or was all that paperwork fraudulent and a house of cards? And for someone concerned with her image, her regal and mysteriousness, you know, this must have been hell, I guess, dragging her through the mud over and over with this sword and talk about money. The press would scream at her kind of, I told you this was all a mistake. You know, we told you so. I don't know what you expected. (laughs) Christina had, she's the only one left. So she had taken over the empire and she had had a very flighty life. She'd escaped to Vegas and eloped with her first husband, you know, <laughs> without telling anybody. Suddenly she was this hard businesswoman who was making these demands and trying to take up where her father had left off and using his same techniques to uh, manipulate the world, in, in this case, to battle Jackie. So I wouldn't be surprised if she was involved in planting a lot of things in the press. Oh, well, now... As far as I know, Jackie didn't ever run Ari down in the press. And if they pressured her to say something, she would say things like she was fond of him and he was a powerful man, similar to the way that you might say your baby is so healthy. (laughs) I do have a quote that is better than that. This is what she told the press as her final word on this subject. Aristotle Onassis rescued me at a moment when my life was engulfed with shadows. He meant a lot to me. He brought me into a world where one could find both happiness and love. We lived through many beautiful experiences together which cannot be forgotten and for which I will be eternally grateful. She wouldn't be drawn further than that. (laughs) Well, and for $20 million, also amen. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is the end of Act Two. And what on earth was Jackie going to do with the rest of her life? Stay tuned. We will be back with the rest of the story. And we are back. And Jackie has decided to move back to New York City. It was home. One of the things that Jackie had to deal with her entire life, it seems, but pretty much from when 
her and Jack walked in to get their marriage license is dealing with the press, dealing with the paparazzi. At this point in her life, her image was bringing in big bucks for a lot of photographers. So she was the target and her kids were the target. And the photographer who was the worst at it was Ron Galella. Actually, as far as he's concerned, he was the best. He focused on Jackie. He made her his obsession. He ended up getting thousands of photographs of her over 15 years. So like the JFK library, this is something that's running parallel to everything else that she does for a huge chunk of her life. He followed her daily. He found out what her routine was, where she was going, where her kids were going. He bribed people to find out where she was. He would interrupt her kids' activities to try to get pictures. He followed her in boats. He followed her in taxis. And one day he jumped out and surprised John Jr. on a bike ride. And that's when Jackie said, I've had enough. You're getting too close to my kids. John Jr. still had Secret Service detail. She had the Secret Service grab him and he was arrested. So what did he do? He sued Jackie. His case was that, I know, his point was that he was protected by the First Amendment to photograph her in public and that her stopping him from photographing her was interrupting his livelihood. That was his case. Mm. Uh, mm, yes. So she actually countersued for damages and said that she lived in fear of him. Ultimately, she did win and he was required to remain 25 feet away from her. Years later in the 80s, he was still at it. So she sued him again. And what she said was that he had violated that restraining order. You didn't mention that I think are important to realize the gravity of the situation. He actually began a relationship with one of her maids once so that he could get closer and get details. Mm -hmm. That is some dangerous liaisons level crap. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And he's so proud of what he did. Oh, yeah. And then he'd said something to one of his friends years after the restraining order. I wonder if Jackie still thinks about me. Yeah, I'm sure she doesn't. There's actually a Netflix documentary and he's on it. And I love the documentary content, except I didn't like seeing his face. And he was just bragging the whole time about this relationship. I mean, weird stuff. But, you know, ironically and sadly, one of the pictures I like the best of Jackie is one that he took. It's one mm -hmm. where she's kind of breezing along. She just has a little... I don't know, like a little crop top and jeans on and her hair's mm -hmm. blowing in the wind and she's just walking along looking happy. And he took that picture. Now, there are other pictures of her literally running away from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he called that particular shot his Mona Lisa. I mean, that was a big payday shot for him. He That's one of the ones when he was following her in a cab and he had the cabbie blow the horn and she just turned and that's he just happened to get it right that second. So. I mean, who would be famous, seriously, to that level? I just, it's just... So scary to me. Yeah. So cracks had appeared in the veneer of Camelot. Cracks that had begun a long time ago. But now in the 70s, tell-alls were starting to be written about Jack's romantic liaisons. The news got out about Dr. Feelgood and all the drugs. You know, those 60s and the drugs. Well, this was the early 60s, but still just as titillating. And Kennedy's mafia connections started to come out of the woodwork. So what a time to be out of the frying pan of the Onassis curse situation and into the fire. No wonder she kept a giant basket of those sunglasses by the front door. <laughs> no kidding. They looked really good on her, though. That was like her signature thing. 
So Jackie got a job, her first job since the old woman on the street interviews before she was married. So she was a consulting editor for Viking Publishers. She ended up working four days a week, which if you have never had a job before, that seems quite a bit. And she worked for $10,000 a year for Viking Press. <laughs> By all accounts, she was a very hard worker. People enjoyed being around her and that she was very down to earth. And she was also very good at her job. They kind of allowed her to choose her own adventure a little bit. I worry that Viking Publishers was using her for her celebrity connections a little bit. Yeah, I actually think she got hired because of her connections in the first place. But I think once she was there, she proved herself as an editor. You know, she wasn't just this person that could attract big names to the publisher. And I like the description of her colleagues. They evidently came to work and sat ramrod stiff in their chairs with their fanciest clothes on. Like, what do we do? <laughs> Her best known work there at Viking Publishers was a photographic kind of a coffee table book connected to a costume exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now she got in trouble because famous author Jeffrey Archer wrote a book that was basically a very thinly veiled thriller based on the premise of what if Ted Kennedy was also assassinated? Uh, even the main publishers like you gotta run this one by Jackie. That's too close to home. She didn't read it because why? I don't know. But she said, just get rid of the, all the Kennedy stuff and that should be okay. Get rid of it the best you can. Well, so time passed and no one thought a thing of it. But then it came out and the storm broke. How dare you? The review in the New York Times said anyone associated with this should be ashamed of herself. Yes. <laughs> of herself, yeah. Mm -hmm. The Kennedys were furious. And I'm sorry to say that Jackie rolled over on the publishing house. She sort of disclaimed any knowledge of ever having seen it and resigned. And there was bad blood everywhere. I think she was very upset about it. I mean, probably partially at herself for not having read it and trusted, you know, the people that she worked with to not do this to her. I know. It kind of ruined up her new lifestyle of having a job and being a career woman. It was not good. Mm -hmm. No, but she bounced right back pretty quickly when she got hired by Doubleday as an associate editor. And there she got to work three days a week and she would eat her lunch at her desk like all the normal people. Uh, she took her summers off. She had been building this beautiful house out on Martha's Vineyard. I think it was 19 rooms on 400 acres. The house is still there. The 400 acres has been subdivided into other properties. And last year, two of them sold for just the land. $20 million. <laughs> so, well, that so, is some real estate. It sure is. It's beautiful. It's up island. And I have to say, I was on the vineyard while she lived there, while this house was here. And I looked for her and I looked for John Jr. And I never saw them. And I was there years. I mean, summer after summer, I looked. You can't even see the house from the road. I know. Sure, oh, you were looking for Jackie. We all no, know I... about John John. <laughs> I was looking for John John. Yeah, I mean, he's older than me, but still, he was a good looking man. Um, while she was at Doubleday, she edited 10 to 12 books a year, which I think is a good number. That's quite a bit. Mostly she did fiction. And again, like she did at Viking, she got to pick her subjects, her titles. She would pick mostly nonfiction books about 
art and history. She published Carly Simon, who is her neighbor out on the vineyard, um, children's books. And she's responsible for bringing Michael Jackson's autobiography, Moonwalk, to press. She loved being behind the scenes, though, not having the spotlight on her and working with her authors. Um, She was known to have done more with her authors than any other editor, maybe because, you know, she didn't have the financial pressures on her to get the job done quickly so she could take the time to do it. I also think there was a little ignorance is bliss going on, too. I thought about that. I Mm -hmm. don't know that Jackie knew that she didn't have to go to the events at the end, the press events. I don't know if she knew she didn't have to hold the author's hand as much as she did. I I think everyone benefited from the fact that, like a newbie podcaster, you perhaps don't know all the things that you can outsource. And mm-hmm. I, So I think she really took it on. I mean, she was a great colleague. Everyone at Doubleday thought that she was a great co-worker. None of this, you know, she's a figurehead, celebrity, know nothing Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, she became a member of the family, and I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. No, I do too. And I think, um, you know, she was able to throw herself into this, like she'd done for things in the past. But this is for herself. This is her creating her own life. She was at a point in her life where she didn't need to be someone's wife anymore, and she didn't want to be someone's wife. She wanted to be herself and live her own life her way, not trying to make somebody else look good, which is what she'd been doing. I think this is a side of her that no one had ever seen before. At last, she was using her intelligence in a way she might have been able to long ago if she'd never married Kennedy. I say that, but society was different. It was expected that you would marry, you know. So Mm -hmm. perhaps she benefited from it being significantly later in the women's liberation movement (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and the personal growth scenario. But I do believe had she found somewhere to be where she could have exercised that side of her personality, she would be a happier person. Totally agree, too. I just love looking at pictures of her from this era, you know, ones that she knew were being taken. Right. (laughs) She knew the power of her celebrity and she placed it very carefully. And um, yeah, the photos of her, she just looks content, I guess. No, right after she started at Doubleday. I don't know, life imitating art or maybe just the Kennedy machine, Teddy Kennedy decided that he was going to run as the Democratic nominee against President Jimmy Carter. And Jackie was brought off the bench back on board for this campaign. But as we'd said, the name Kennedy had lost quite a bit of its cachet and almost all of its power. And Jackie is credited with saving Teddy from the embarrassment of losing New York. But otherwise, his run for the presidency was just a train wreck. Mm -hmm. Well, his name was still tarnished. I mean, not just the Kennedy name, but his because of what happened at Chappaquiddick. He just handled it so unbelievably bad. Who would trust that? Jackie was brought in for another battle. She, in fact, fought battles all over the city for the skyline and the history of New York City. In particular, Grand Central Station was on the chopping block. People had already taken down Penn Station, and now they wanted to erect a high-rise where Grand Central Station was. And she and a committee called the Municipal Art Society, who had tried to fight the Penn Station battle without her, 
they succeeded in getting Grand Central Station national landmark status, which saved it from destruction. And then she was involved in its restoration. I mean, not obviously to the extent that she was in the White House. She was part of this group that restored Grand Central Station to I think better than it was ever before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Her point during a speech in court, she said, is it not cruel to let our city die by degrees, stripped of all of our proud monuments until there be nothing left of all of its history and beauty to inspire our children? If they're not inspired by the past of our city, where will they find the strength to fight for the future? See, that's kind of powerful. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so powerful that people outside of New York were inspired to write their representatives, even though they didn't live in New York. They wanted to help save Grand Central from all over the country. So that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's kind of like what she did, you know, with the White House, getting national attention and national contributions to it. She also saved a section of 42nd Street, which is now known as Theater Row. Mm -hmm. And she was involved in cleaning up uh, Times Square. That is very important. (laughs) There was a time in the 70s that you really were frightened to go to Times Square. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I do remember that time. We used to go down to the city quite a bit, and my parents didn't like going there very much. She also worked in other boroughs. Um, She worked on a project in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It's an area of Brooklyn. Um, She helped them to build affordable housing and to spotlight the cultural and artistic contributions of the Black-owned businesses in the area on a larger scale, as in getting local designs featured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I mean, that's pretty big. I know. I keep laughing, though. It's like, I'm surprised they'd work with you (laughs) after what you pulled. No, I'm just with the (laughs) silver. (laughs) No, that's right. That was years ago. That was a different Jackie. (laughs) Well, and so here she was at last. And I am finally happy. And you'll notice our voices sound a lot happier now. Um, She's got a job she loved colleagues who went to bat for her and a city's history to defend in her spare time. And she wasn't exactly looking for love or even for a male figure, love interest stand in, but she found it in the person she described as her best friend, Maurice Templesman. Their relationship had actually gone back. Like, I mean, like Aristotle and Nassus, she had known him since Senator Kennedy days. Um, He was a Democratic supporter. (laughs) He was also a diamond merchant, and he helped to grow her $20 million that she had gotten from Aristotle Onassis as a financial consultant to her. Um, It grew it like five times. So you do that math. (laughs) Good job. That's a good friend to have in your corner. He was unlike the other two main love interests in her life, except for the fact that he was married to someone else. So come on, (laughs) we cannot turn the whole new leaf, Susan. No, No. But he was dependable, a quote, very nice man. 99 out of 100 Jackie friends agree. It doesn't seem like great praise, does it? But I want you to think of the contrast. He was protective. He was considerate. He was reliable. He was brainy. He's not going to tell you you're stupid for talking about Socrates. He's going to go get a book down and debate you about it. He admired her mind in a way that neither of her husbands ever had, which is a waste of decades of time. I can just see how restful he was after a lifetime of turmoil, starting with her dad. Oh, yeah. He was the most stable, mature man that she ever had in her life. And he was 
devoted to her. The reason why he didn't get divorced, he had been married in 1946 and his wife was an Orthodox Jew and she just never would agree to it. And they had um, an understanding. And so he had his life and she had hers. They had children together, um, but she just would never divorce him. And I don't think he asked. One of his children, in contrast to Onassis's children, was quoted as saying that Jackie was a surrogate grandmother to her children. Love. I'm making little hearts with my hands. Goes way better this time. Well, (laughs) yeah, doesn't. (laughs) Right after Jackie died, remember how Jackie had started to work towards the JFK library. She was working on funding and getting items for it. Well, in 1979, it was finally able to be opened. It was a reality. And she had not only helped to get Jack's materials there, but they scored Ernest Hemingway's papers. And she made sure that that uh, collection had a room of its own in the library. So Ernest Hemingway's papers is in the John F. Kennedy Library, which is pretty awesome. I have mm-hmm. made no connection really between Hemingway and Jackie until this very second when I'm kind of wondering, he liked a bullfight, she liked a bullfight, he liked to hang around super famous people, she liked to hang around super famous people. I'm wondering if they ever hung out. I can't answer that. And if anybody can, I'd love to know. Me too. I haven't, I didn't see any pictures of it. Although, can you imagine like hanging out in Key West? (laughs) I'm pretty sure JFK invited Hemingway to the inauguration. After all, he kind of paraphrased Hemingway's definition of courage for his own book, Profiles in Courage. JFK admired him. And maybe that is why, after all the menfolk were gone, Hemingway's widow donated that collection. And I guess... Jackie, as curator of America's heritage, probably saw it as preserving yet another piece of American history as an homage to her husband. So I guess I can see how it ended up there, but it's just a curious mix of icons there at the library. At the opening of the library, Caroline at that point was in her final year at Radcliffe. John had just started Brown University. He was a history major. And both of them spoke at the dedication of the JFK Library. What a way to honor a father that you didn't really have a very long relationship with. Although Jackie did her best over the years to make sure that his picture was everywhere and that they heard stories about him from people who knew him. Um, What an honor for them to be able to talk at the dedication of his library as adults. Jackie's last big political move really was to support Bill Clinton's run for the White House. She found Hillary to be a kindred spirit. Entertaining and intelligent and up for the task of being first lady, she in fact said, well, America's just getting a bargain because she's worth more than two Helens of Troy. Yeah, Jackie and Hillary became pretty close in those years, and Jackie was one of Bill Clinton's very earliest campaign contributors. Very nice. So at 64 years of age, Jackie began feeling sort of unwell. And after a fall from a horse, one of those sort of accidental discovery diagnoses they're so fond of over on the Grey's Anatomy (laughs) um, happened. And it was discovered that Jackie was suffering from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she endured chemotherapy, radical surgery, some experimental treatments, and nothing helped. The cancer eventually spread to some other organs. And ultimately, um, Jackie refused further treatment. It would just not add to her quality of the remainder of her life. And the news did get out 
that this was going on. Strangers held vigils in front of her building. Close friends and family came around to say their goodbyes. Jackie made her last confession to her priest. She was surrounded in those last days by all the people that she loved, her family, her closest friends. It sounds like a beautiful way to exit this life. And then on May 19th, 1994, Jackie Kennedy passed away. Her funeral was held in the very same church where she'd been baptized so many years ago. That is a curiously closed circle that Mm -hmm. I am, for some reason, not liking. (laughs) You're not? No, I know to some people that might be comforting, but to me, it's like, I don't know. It almost seems like somebody's a race then. Well, like circle, the end, zero. You didn't, I don't know. I was not struck by that in a good way. And that's just probably just me. I think so, because I thought it was very sweet and it was a fitting place for her to leave. Well, the name Onassis was not mentioned in any way at the church, nor at the service near the gravesite, except for the name that is on her headstone. She is buried in Arlington Cemetery next to Jack Kennedy, America's tragic queen once more and forever, and President Bill Clinton delivered her eulogy. And that is the end of the life of Jackie Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. I wish the beginning part had been more like the end part. No, I think almost everyone they interviewed for anything after she died said that the last 15 years of her life, she was a new woman. You know, she was notorious during the Jack Kennedy years and the Onassis years for being maybe snappy, or not as considerate of close friends as she could for cutting people out of her life for what seemed like spurious reasons. She was on tenterhooks all the time because of the Mm -hmm. lifestyle she was forced to lead, I think. But these last 15 years, everyone described her as kind, helpful, contented, always laughing, good for a joke, all of these positive things that said to me that she was genuinely, utterly happy. So you're right. I wish that the middle part could have been cleaned up. Yeah, a little bit. Although she needed the money from the middle part to do the end part. (laughs) It's always something. (laughs) I know it is. It is. It is. Life works out the way it does and we just take it and work with it, right? Correct. Well, as to media. Um, Why don't we start with books? Is that okay? Yeah. There were so many books for this. I really needed to narrow it down to the ones that I just truly found really important, um, maybe a little bit different, the ones that I really liked. Of any subject that we've covered, I think Jackie had the most materials for us to get information from. Well, let's just put it this way. I am currently blocked from checking out books at the library (laughs) because I have had this teetering stack of material here that I see you get to a point where they're late and you can't renew online. So you have to remember during libraries opening hours to talk to a person. No, all these things conspire to make it so I cannot renew them. And then they just think they're lost. And so now (laughs) they think, I don't know, 27 things are lost. They're not lost. They're right here. (laughs) And they'll be at the library very soon. Here you go. (laughs) I feel bad, but it's just my process. Do you want to start with a kid book? I have a good one called When Jackie Saved Grand Central, the true story of Jacqueline Kennedy's fight for an American icon. I thought this was so charming. It was adorable. I I highly recommended that one. It's written by Natasha Wing, illustrated by Alexandra 
Boiger. B-O-I-G-E-R. We had already talked about this one, but we both strongly recommend that you read Letters to Jackie, Condolences from a Grieving Nation by Ellen Fitzpatrick. She had received 800,000 letters in the first few weeks, 1.5 million in the first year. This is 250 of those collected for you to read in their entirety. And it's so touching. It's such a good way to look at how America viewed the death of Kennedy. I opened this at random. I just want to read this because it's so touching. Everyone wrote to her as if she were their friend and wanted to express their deepest sympathies. Now, this goes on and on and on. This is a very long letter. But the very first part says, Dear Mrs. Kennedy and children, excuse me for writing a letter, but I don't have a sympathy card and I live 18 miles from town. And being 71 years old, we don't have no car and I don't get to Clarksville very often. But I want to tell you, I loved President Kennedy dearly and his death has hurt me so deeply I can't eat or sleep. When he would appear on my TV screen, his presence and that wonderful smile would brighten up my home so much. How I will miss him. No one but me will ever know. And this book is full of letters like that. Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, if I was going to buy any of these books, that's the one I'd buy. Um, as to coffee table books, you can take your pick. There are a many of them. The coffee table book that I liked is something that we touched on a few times, but I don't think we gave it a lot of attention as Jackie probably would have. Um, it's called The Private Passion of Jackie Kennedy Onassis, Portrait of a Writer by Vicki Moon. It's photographs from 1938 to 1989 of Jackie and her horses. And they did such a beautiful job of keeping the color consistent through a lot of the book it's just these beautiful CP. oh it was and i'm not like a horse person this was if you're a horse person this book is gorgeous also kind of random i was noticing <laughs> that okay any aspect of jackie's life has been turned into a major work there is a book that i checked out that is simply the year she left greece to move to new york there is a whole entire biography based on just that year Mm -hmm. I had one that was the whole of last year of Jack and Jackie's marriage. Niche journalism is alive. I know there was one book that went into how she liked her potatoes cooked or something. And I thought, my friends, we have crossed a line. <laughs> <laughs> that funny. is very interesting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There so is a book that came out um, just at the end of our research for this. So I did not read it. It's um, Janet, Jackie and Lee. It's a brand new book by J. Randy Tabarelli, and I like the cover. I would have picked it up. The main biography, straight biography that I liked the best is one that I actually bought, um, America's Queen, The Life of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis by Sarah Bradford. <laughs> yep. Actually, I bought two copies of that. I bought it on audiobook, and then I wasn't reading it fast enough on audiobook, so I bought it for my Kindle. There is another biography that is extremely detailed. It was probably the largest book that I had. It's called A Woman Named Jackie by C. David Hyman, and it is very thorough. If you like your biographies to go into a lot of detail instead of just telling the story, that's the book for you. And we put these all on our show notes, so if you... You don't have to remember them. There's a lot of books here. Yes, books. Let's put that to the side. We've covered that. Movies, TV adaptations, there are a plenty. So I'm just going to focus on the person that I thought played Jackie the best, maybe the best adaptation, and the uh, industry seems to agree, as this one received many, many awards, including a BAFTA. Um, Jackie, 
simply Jackie, with Natalie Portman. And um, I thought Natalie did a great job with the accent. I mean, it's so hard. That's where a lot of people, a lot of actresses lose it, I guess. Um, and I thought her portrayal of her was great. It's really just focuses on the assassination up till the funeral. So like all those little books that de- dealt with a year, this deals with a month. <laughs> so it includes the conversation that she had with a journalist. It's not the n- journalist isn't named in the movie. They just call him, quote, the journalist. Um, but they go back through all those conversations to look at their life together, but it was just right in the aftermath of his assassination. Don't miss that documentary that ABC put together in 2011 that is based on all those tapes that Jackie recorded and then had held back for 50 years. So there, you know there's some juicy stuff in there. There is. It's called In Her Voice. It's hosted by Diane Sawyer, and it is on YouTube, so I can embed it right on our show notes. So you can go right to the show notes and um, watch it. I thought it was really good. Um, There is a documentary that's on Netflix. It's called Jackie, A Tale of Two Sisters, and it's telling the stories of Jackie and Lee Parallel. And that's the one that has a lot of Ron Galella in it. The content was great. And then there's Ron Galella. So if you can tolerate watching (laughs) Ron Galella, um, it's a brand new documentary, well, 2017, and it's on Netflix. So I thought it was really good, except for him. (laughs) You know, that actually does make me kind of sad that we couldn't didn't have time really to focus on Lee. She has a very interesting life. So I'm glad you can catch up with her on that documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She had a lot of chapters to her life too, didn't she? Oh, yes. So I have a, what I consider to be an extremely special piece of audio. I mean, there's a static picture. It is an audience of the Boston Symphony and it is taped live from the moment the conductor turns during a symphony concert to inform the audience that the president has been killed. You hear the audience in shock. You hear the sadness in his voice. There is a pause while proctors are handing out music to each and every orchestra member who has just found out what happened. And then together, they play a requiem for John F. Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. I didn't listen to that. And I've got chills. Because they were taping the symphony concert for other purposes, they caught that moment. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, The JFK Library, um, there's a physical and a cyber version that you can visit. If you're in Boston, you can visit it. If you're not, you can go online and we'll give you a link to that. And the National First Ladies Library and Historic Site in Canton, Ohio. Again, there's a physical and a cyber version of it and we'll link you up. I did not know that even existed before this. I didn't either. Thank you so much. I was like, did we miss this sometime? Yeah, Canton, Ohio. So somebody that lives near Canton, Ohio, you should go and do a uh, field report. Yes, please do. I would love to hear how it is. I don't think I'll be getting to Canton anytime soon. Also, in late breaking news, our friends at the Bowery Boys podcast just yesterday, as of this recording, released an entire episode on the salvation of Grand Central Station, including an interview with a man who worked with Jackie Kennedy on this project. And last week, they sent out a show covering the unfortunate destruction of its sister landmark, Penn Station. It is absolutely perfect timing for a companion piece after you've listened here to Jackie. You can listen to both of these shows at their website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, or we recommend subscribing to the Bowery Boys on your favorite podcatcher.
Also, if you're interested in this sort of aspect, there are both timelines of assassination and medical details available to you. We didn't want to talk about them in too much detail, but um, we will give you links if that is your thing. That will do it for our coverage of Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And in closing, we are going to leave you with some words that Kennedy presidential advisor Clark Clifford once wrote to Jackie. Once in a great while, an individual will capture the imagination of people all over the world. You have done this, and what is more important, through your graciousness and tact, you have transformed this rare accomplishment into an incredibly important asset to this nation. Jackie Kennedy was a real person who has become an icon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! It has become extraordinarily easy to leave a review for the History Chicks or for the Recapery on your iPhone. That's what I have in my hand, and I can't really speak to Android users. We're going to have to ask Susan. But on your podcast app, just search for the History Chicks, tap on our logo, tap on the word reviews, and right there it says write a review. So if you have a few minutes and feel so inclined, we would love for you to write a review. It really helps us reach more people. Thanks a lot. The end song is The Most Popular Girl in the World by Ari Shine, courtesy of music.mevio.com.
She's the most popular girl in the world. She's the most popular girl in the world. In the world. In the world. Accepted, admired, detested, desired. Also, as promised, if this is your thing, you can wait for muffler shops to open in the morning and take your car in. <laughs> well, I have one going down my street right now, too.